Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning Ask the Experts sessions. Uh, this is going to be a fantastic one. Uh, we have Dr. Nina Atkins uh, from Duke University, who's going to be presenting a very relevant topic of gender-affirming care in pediatric practice. But before I introduce her and, uh, and pass the baton to her to give her a spectacular presentation, um, I do want to recognize uh, all the women physicians here at Connecticut Children's in the Department of Pediatrics and, uh, and in the state of Connecticut and everyone who's listening, because today is National Women's Physicians Day. And so um, really congratulations for all the great work that you do every single day. Uh, well, certainly in pediatrics, you represent us in, a, in an exemplary way. Uh, and in fact, uh, right now, you're, you're the majority, uh, which is a good thing for, for all of us. So, so congratulations on your day. Celebrate it in whichever way you can. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, my heart to, uh, to all of you for all the great work that you do. Uh, today, we have uh, an outstanding uh, speaker who's agreed to log in from a little warmer uh, North Carolina, although I think it is also probably cold. It's going to be very cold here in Connecticut this weekend, probably the coldest in the, in the very warm winter otherwise. And uh, Dr. Dr. Atkins is director of the Duke Child and Adolescent uh, Gender Care Program. He's also clinical co-director of the Duke Gender Health and Wellness Program. Uh, she has an exemplary curriculum. She uh, uh, received a uh, bachelor's in applied biology and genetics from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, and then she attended the medical school at the Medical College of Georgia, followed by a residency in pediatrics at the University of North Carolina Hospitals in Chapel Hill, and uh, where she stayed on to do a pediatric uh, fellowship in uh, a fellowship in pediatric endocrinology. Uh, she then joined uh, Duke University, and she's currently associate professor of pediatrics at Duke. And she's really now known as one of the one of the world's uh, one of the certainly in the U.S. experts. Uh, in the topic of gender-affirming care. She's been a tremendous advocate. She's been in the national news, has published in this topic, and certainly we, uh, we honor her for you know, really being a voice uh, sometimes in the wilderness about this topic that is so, so important. So we, I've looked at her slides and her presentation. I think it's going to be really informative for all of us uh, and, and align with our core values. At the end of the presentation, I'll ask uh, Dr. Uh, Santos uh, to also say a few words uh, about the work that we do here. As you know, Melissa is the, uh, you know, she's the Associate Chair for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion here at the University of Connecticut and Connecticut Children. So, uh, Dr. Atkins, thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to pass the podium to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> I always love uh, talking uh, about this um, subject, and um, I'm so excited to be here this morning and hope you all have a happy Friday and happy National Women Physicians Day. I didn't know. Now I got to have a party today. Um, so um, we're going to talk a little bit about what you can do and what I do in gender affirming care um, for children in our uh, practices. Um, going to start with our learning objectives. Uh, most of you probably know how to use appropriate terminology, but I'd like to do a quick review, knowing that those change uh, a lot um, throughout the, uh, the, this group of uh, patients. Um, we're going to talk about therapeutic options for patients um, and how to develop a therapeutic alliance, especially with um, parents who might be a little apprehensive. Um, my conflicts of interest, if you will, are that I do advocacy work for, uh, with the ACLU and Lambda Legal to advocate for transgender youth in the U.S. court system. 
um, I also uh, have funding from uh, Med uh, North Carolina Medicaid to work with children um, who have diabetes, who are struggling to manage their, their care. Um, I, so um, gender dysphoria is, is sort of the distress part of, of what people who are transgender experience. Not all people have that distress, especially if they've been affirmed and gotten care, but certainly folks who are transgender are not zebras. Um, when we look at the prevalence of type 1 diabetes and um, uh, the prevalence of, of transgender individuals in the U.S. Um, as of 2016, um, they're about the same. Uh, in newer data, we're seeing that it's uh, a higher percentage, maybe even up to 3% of high school students in some reports. So you're definitely going to see this in your clinics. Um, and when we look across the US, and, and this slide is specifically uh, at North Carolina, but you can see that in Connecticut, you guys are approximately the same uh, color as us here in North Carolina. Uh, quite a, uh, a percentage of folks who are transgender, uh, 1.4 million Americans. Um, and this was um, a couple of years ago too. Um, the new data should be out for um, this year soon. And when we talk about um, taking care of these kiddos, um, who are they going to ask for support? Who do they trust? When we look at public surveys of uh, who people trust um, with their care and, and, and feel are, are honest and ethical and ha um, have standards, nurses are top, pharmacists then, and then of course medical doctors uh, followed. This is a 2018 Gallup poll. If you look at the uh, 2022 follow-up to that during the pandemic. Uh, we all got a little bump there on the medical profession side, and but we're back to um, where we were before, but we are definitely who people trust to come to. The question is, um, uh, is, it, is that true? Um, can people trust us? Um, and how can we help them trust us more? Um, many folks will put off uh, their care who are transgender because they just aren't sure who they're going to get when they walk in the door of a healthcare center. Um, this is one quote. Um, there are many more, and, I, and I, a lot of my patients um, don't even want me to send their uh, gender care notes to their primary care providers in some parts of rural North Carolina because they aren't sure that they can trust them. So there's, there's still a bit of work to be done here. Um, uh, when we look at this survey from Lambda Legal from several years ago, there is a lot of, uh, of, of un, untenable behavior within the healthcare system. You'll note that the dark blue is the transgender non-binary population, um, and then the green is the lesbian, gay, and bisexual population, all um, experiencing quite a bit of um, discrimination within the healthcare system, um, specifically with people not knowing what uh, these folks need uh, to start with. So we're working on that today, right? Um, but uh, uh, about a third were treat felt they were treated differently. Um, uh, 16% got felt like they were getting worse care than um, non-trans folks. Uh, almost 8% refused care, and a, a quarter of LGBT of, um, 
of the LGB population and a quarter of the trans population. Harsh language, blame, excessive precautions, and people being physically rough with them. It's just unacceptable. Um, uh, what do these folks need and what do our kiddos need? They need an environment that is safe and welcoming where they can talk with their provider uh, about the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, social transition is often first. They, they may do that in uh, their home setting and in their school setting. And then medical transition, which we'll talk about, which includes, um, you know, uh, hormone replacement, maybe puberty blockers, and maybe surgical procedures. Um, and then we'll of course, their preventive health care and primary health care needs are huge. And so having that, uh, them be able to identify you as a safe place um, in your primary care practices is, is key. And then um, with that and you as their home base um, often takes a multidisciplinary approach. And we'll talk about um, the folks that we use and, and our care here and who I encourage you to, to have in your team uh, wherever you practice. Um, let's first talk about the language. Um, this is uh, the gender care, uh, uh, the gingerbread uh, person. Um, this is uh, was developed by uh, Seth uh, um, Kitterman. Um, I love this one. There's also a gender unicorn out there. It kind of helps you understand the differences between um, gender identity, which is really what you know in your brain, right, uh, about who you are. Um, and uh, when you look at your heart, you're talking about more attraction. So that's more of a, a, a sexual identity more than a gender identity, right? And then when we talk about biological sex, um, so to speak, um, or sex assigned at birth, that's the anatomy that you have. And then the, your expression is really what you put out there to the world and how you express um, yourself in your culture um, with uh, as it relates to the gender norms in your culture. And just remembering that, that that's di very different um, in a lot of places, um, you know, in some parts of the world, um, uh, people who are assigned to male at birth will wear skirts, uh, like in Scotland, for example. Um, and uh, robes are common in lots of parts of the world for all people. Um, uh, and so, uh, it's definitely uh, a cultural norm uh, that we're talking about when we talk about your expression and, and what those look like. Um, uh, and when we think about, I, I tried to fix this slide with the black writing and I apologize, I couldn't get it fixed, but it's really just talking about that um, gender is often seen as a binary, but really isn't so binary. Um, and neither is a biological sex or assigned sex at birth. For those of us who are in endocrinology, we definitely know there's a spectrum. Um, and so these are sort of the ends of the spectrum um, in, in the current US culture of the gender binary, male being more masculine, logical, decisive, independent, the leader, whereas female, more emotional, uh, maybe indecisive, dependent, uh, supporter, I would suggest um, that, you know, we're all in between here these days, right? Um, know that your sex assigned at birth may not uh, match your gender identity as you're growing up. Um, 
go, people go through a process of figuring out their gender identity, those kindergartners and preschool kids, it's a normal part of development to say like, am I a boy or am I a girl? And to explore dressing in princesses and fireman hats and all the different things. And that doesn't mean that that, that child is necessarily transgender, but once they are older and are really understand who they are and have consolidated their gender identity, um, then uh, it's uh, much more likely that they're going to be consistent with that gender identity throughout their life. Although many, many kiddos that I see knew from the age of two when they could verbalize it, what their gender identity was and that it didn't match what they had been assigned it at birth. So um, it's, it, for some kids, it's early. For some kids, it's later. But it's uh, definitely uh, those kids are considered transgender non-binary. Um, when when those two things are equivalent, then that that is cisgender. That's the, that term is used, and that the gender identity and your sex assignment at birth are equal to one another and match. Um, there are lots of different terms to be used for people who are transgender: transgender woman, trans woman, um, maybe male to female. That's being used less. Um, gender queer, demi boy, demi girl. Um, a lot of the words that people use to describe themselves in this area are, are changing over time. So my suggestion is you ask the patient how they identify, what words they use. And, and um, I usually say, please, uh, you know, I'm, if I haven't heard that word before, I'll say, you know, that's not something I'm familiar with. Would you describe to me what that means to you? And um, they usually are very excited to tell you um, what that means to them. Um, um, and then again, don't conflate uh, sort of gender and sexuality. Sexual orientation is really about who you love, who you're attracted to. It is developing at the same time, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And remember that all of these things come to us and to people on a spectrum, uh, including biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, uh, gender presentation, uh, which is, and then sexual orientation, of course. Um, trans folks um, often choose pronouns that are, um, are may, uh, different from those that were assigned to them at birth. Uh, so I have um, on my, uh, my name tag, I have asked me about my pronouns and I have um, my pronouns. And that's a good way to kind of open that discussion up. And uh, often, and I ask people their pronouns. It's part of our medical record. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And they may have pronouns that you haven't heard before, including uh, Z or uh, Zers. Um, so if they have those, just um, you know, ask them uh, and put them in the record. Um, so. Um, of course, that's if they want you to put them in the record. They may not be ready for that. Uh, so always ask your patients when you're seeing them, um, do, you, do you care if I put your gender identity in the, in the patient record so that other people can um, identify you that way or you want to wait and that'll just be in my records. Same with their pronouns. Um, and now that leads us to the documentation and what we were talking about with our notes. Um, uh, in EPIC, which is what we use, and I know there are several systems that um, people use, um, but this is what our system looks like. Um, this is the um, actual uh, uh, my chart um, 
questionnaire. So this is they can access on their phone or on their computer in the privacy of their own home and put in what they uh, recognize as their own gender identity um, and sexual orientation. Um, and, and then you will notice they have opportunities to, to put in something other than this here as well. Um, I would like to add uh, to, uh, to our sex assigned at birth a non-binary or a, um, an X sort of rather than unknown. Um, although oftentimes when I'm seeing those kids, it is unknown. <laughs> um, but um, many states do offer that as an option on birth certificates now as an X. And then of course, sexual orientation as it applies to um, sexual health um, is important to have in the chart as uh, kids and adults uh, move ahead in their lives. This is what it looks like on the provider side for um, us at Duke. Um, I can put this, this on the sex and gender tab is what um, it is labeled as. In your particular visit, it'll be in the, the top tabs. Uh, typically, if you can't find it in the tabs that are routinely there on your, on your encounter, it'll be in that um, top right corner drop down box where the infrequently used items are typically. So you can um, put this information in as well. And you can also put in their uh, preferred name. Um, um, or chosen name. Preferred is an, a term that we're kind of moving away from uh, because it, it's really their name uh, and it's the name we want to use. Um, but in Epic, it's still labeled as preferred name and pronouns. This is the um, one of the things I was originally very excited about, and I still am. It is the um, place where you can um, identify what organs folks have, the in, uh, organ inventory. It was developed in San Francisco. Um, it per, I was hoping it would have all their organs because who doesn't need to know if the patient has an appendix or not if they come in with belly pain. Um, but it just includes the uh, organs that may be affected by um, uh, any hormone uh, treatment or, or surgical treatment related to gender affirming care. Um, but that's a start. Um, Maybe one day we'll have one that says, I don't have my gallbladder either. Um, I would love that. Um, so if you have an option to have this in your medical record, it's, it's very helpful. Um, it, um, it will, I will say it triggers um, or eliminates particular preventive healthcare um, measures within the um, system. So that if you are, for example, a transgender woman and you've had um, a vaginoplasty, you still have a prostate and you still need to have your prostate checked over time for prostate cancer screenings. And so the prostate will remain uh, present um, in, in this organ inventory and that person will, uh, primary care will be given a trigger to, oh, it's time to check this person's prostate, um, even though they are um, a, a woman. Uh, a transgender woman. And same with, do they still have their cervix? Do they need pap smears? Do they need uh, uh, the, that kind of care as well? But if they don't, then um, that uh, pop-up will not um, come up and it won't confuse people in their records. So it's really helpful a lot with preventive care. Um, more ways that you can help uh, your patients feel comfortable. Um, Give them your, your pronouns, as I mentioned, either wear a pen or offer your pronouns. Uh, 
it's it's even better if you introduce yourself with your pronouns. Um, uh, ask the patients their uh, name and is there a different name that they would like for us to to use when they're in clinic is another way to go about um, phrasing that. Uh, make sure that your front desk and your call reminders and other folks aren't using gendered uh, methods uh, to address the patient, making sure that your uh, notes to the primary uh, or notes to um, other folks are also up to date with that information. If you make a mistake, um, it happens, just I'm so sorry, and uh, move on and you, uh, do your utmost to use the name and pronouns that the patient would like you to use. Um, if you kind of keep going on and on about it, it, it makes it much more uncomfortable and much worse. So just check that box and say, I'm so sorry, and move ahead. If you can, and I'll show you some examples, have signage in your office and or on yourselves, um, that note that you are LGBTQ friendly. Um, we have some things that I'll show you. Uh, offer gender neutral restrooms, please, if at all possible. In Pete's, we generally have a family restroom, which is often gender neutral, uh, which helps us out. Um, but if you are not in pediatrics or you're in another part of the hospital, um, uh, try to make sure that you're groups have that, um, if at all possible, or and directions to them next to the gendered um, uh, restrooms, if possible. And we talked a little bit about the other things in EPIC. These are some of the signs that some people use, um, uh, uh, rainbow uh, and trans uh, logos, uh, safe space logos. Um, and uh, you can also um, have your policies up. Um, and make sure that people are using those policies that say that gender identity is a protected um, um, identity, identity within your care system. And, and so posting those and, and making sure people are following them are very important. Um, and when you get out in practice, it's gonna be more important for you to make sure that those folks you're working with know that, and that you've uh, look, taken a look at those policies, okay? So let's move ahead um, to gender-affirming therapies. Um, um, the gender-affirming care model um, includes um, basic premise that no gender identity or expression is wrong. Um, we are very open. Uh, we have no agenda as to what you should identify as or how you should express yourself. We accept you as you come. And if you need assistance with um, moving ahead to make your core identity uh, match um, yourself, then um, we can offer some of those things. Um, uh, these, these expressions, as mentioned, vary across cultures and are very diverse. Um, gender involves a complex uh, integration of biology, human development, socialization, culture, and as well as the context uh, that the person is in. Um, it may be fluid over time. It may be uh, it may be uh, non-binary, um, especially in pediatrics. Again, um, we'll talk, go through a slide about the timing of when people develop and understand these things. Uh, um, mental health conditions are more common in folks who are transgender or non-binary, or are are. Uh, and often are caused by our rea reactions to their gender diversity. Um, um, so um, ma making sure that you really um, 
your actions exhibit uh, gender affirming uh, state of mind is going to be most helpful for individuals. Um, um, and and practice being non-biased and non-judgmental, and understand uh, uh, the healthcare and the mental health care for these individuals. Um, I mentioned earlier that gender dysphoria is the distress that comes from the incongruence um, of your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity. It is generally considered clinically significant, meaning that the, the person needs, it's interfering with some part of their life. Um, and um, um, we're here to help decrease that distress. It can be a combination of uh, changes in their body physically as well as uh, uh, socially, and the dysphoria can be both physical and social. Um, the good news is that transition is uh, very effective at relieving dysphoria, 80%. Um, and this is just one study, that many studies that follow along this uh, particular uh, efficacy rate. 80% of folks um, have a significant improvement in their gender dysphoria, 78% with significant improvements in other psychological symptoms, including anxiety, depression. Uh, improvement in quality of life, as well as significant improvement in sexual function in the majority of patients. Um, what are the possible trajectories for the kiddos that you're going to see? Um, gender non-conforming kids who are younger um, can, and even older, but more typically we think about these different possibilities for the younger kids who come in, the elementary school and preschool aged. Um, some of them are going to be transgender adolescents. Some of them are going to be gender queer. Some will just be sexual minority, I think, uh, you know, uh, in the LGB group. And some will be cisgender and heterosexual. Um, and puberty comes in there and often is where that sort of uh, figuring all of that out happens, right? Uh, and so uh, once their endogenous hormones kick in, um, it helps consolidate whatever gender identity is at the core of their being. Um, um, again, another slide where we see the parallel development of gender identity from the time they're two through um, adulthood um, with a pickup in um, a lot of this in understanding their sexual identity around the same time as the pubertal development occurs. Um, so, um, just being non-judgmental and non-biased uh, during this process where they're exploring is super important. Um, what are their mental health co uh, considerations that you might wanna pay attention to in your clinic? Of course, depression. Um, and two and three transgender and non-binary youth report symptoms of depression in the past two weeks. Um, they may not have major depression, but they definitely may have symptoms. So you'll want to, uh, think about talking with them about that when they're in your clinics. Um, they may have anxiety, a large proportion have symptoms or generalized anxiety or social anxiety. 60% uh, um, uh, may be uh, participating in non-suicidal self-harm. So uh, important to, to keep your eyes open for that and addressing that and helping reduce that self-harm by getting uh, them assistance with the um, uh, with at least um, a therapy uh, and talking with them openly about it and what, what you can do to help with it. 
because that puts them at an increased risk for uh, suicide attempt if they're self-harming already. Um, so of course, um, one in five have attempted suicide in the last 12 months and up to 40%. Um, so in their lifetime, um, and we don't, that's a small number because we don't know the number of kids who may have um, been successful um, that weren't identified. Um, uh, substance use disorder, uh, also screening for that as well as autism is more common um, in, in this group. And then that uh, sort of, um, I think of it as um, something that we need to be, um, may need to communicate in a different way, right? I do education in a different way for kids who are who have autism, depending on what their learning needs are. Um, uh, and um, uh, for some also just their executive uh, planning uh, part of their, their care may need to be done in a little bit different way. And uh, of course, autism is a spectrum. And so assessing where your, your particular patient is and addressing them in, at that particular level of need is, is truly important. And, and that's why I bring it up in this context. There are screening tools that um, we use and that are available. The AAP has a number of other screening tools you may use for depression, anxiety, um, autism. Eating disturbance is actually at a, a higher prevalence in this group as well. Um, uh, of course, uh, stigma, body dysphoria, social dysphoria, and satisfaction, life satisfaction. These are the ones that we use in our clinic, but there are many uh, others available um, for you. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, our medical record systems have um, things that are included, including the PHQ-9 um, within our system, and I, I suspect it's probably available to you. GAD-7 is also available in our particular uh, medical record system. Um, um, looking at uh, affirming their gender identity and what that does, it consistently lowers rates of suicide and uh, uh, attempts over time. And so um, if we want to lower the number two cause of death in adolescence, um, in some polls, it's the third leading cause of death in adolescence, then just affirming their identity and we're well on our way. Um, if we're looking at um, sort of parsing this all out, um, uh, with attempts uh, being up 40%, um, um, as well as considering it and then attempted it in a lifetime is at 20%, so one in five. And where can these go and where are we trying not to go with this, of course? Um, um, rejection of parents from some parents in society. Um, many folks have a supportive family, um, but the ones who don't are the ones that are a high risk. So you want to be able to assess for that in your, in your clinic. Um, societal issues are always a challenge. Um, they suffer from minority stress related to this, um, leading down this path to poor health outcomes. And anywhere we can intervene along this path to stop the poor health outcomes is, is going to uh, make a difference in the lives of kids. The good news is that with social support, we know that there's almost a 50% re reduction in suicide ideation and an 80% risk reduction in attempt. That's huge. That's huge for a population that's so high risk, right? 
that's just social support. Parent education and support from their for their parents increases their resilience and better health outcomes and better mental health. We know that increasing um, uh, use of gender affirming services, like the ones we'll talk about, um, re uh, reduces those health disparities in that end of that outcome uh, pathway there. We also know that anti-discrimination laws and policies to protecting these kids in housing and employment as adults um, and informed health care reduces um, all of that unemployment, housing instability, and health disparities that come with it. Um, so there are lots of things uh, along in the psychosocial assessment um, for patients like this. Um, in our particular clinic, these are some of the things that we do. Um, hopefully, you'll have access in your clinics um, and your communities to uh, individuals who can um, do this as well. Um, coping factors, resilience, um, sexual orientation and health supports. Uh, in their community and their family and what are their stressors so we can address those. What are their goals? What are their core pillars of health? Exercise, sleep, and eating, you know, get those basic needs met. Um, and um, of course, their mental health things, uh, uh, issues as well. Um, when we think of gender affirming hormone, these are kind of the two um, uh, broad sets of effects for uh, affirming hormones. You'll see the feminizing hormones. Um, we can reduce dysphoria and anxiety, depression, um, and improve quality of life. Um, it can improve the uh, recurrence uh, growth of facial hair, uh, decrease that. It can decrease their amount of male pattern baldness. It doesn't affect voice. It can improve blood pressure. Um, it can uh, lower hemoglobin to hematocrit to levels consistent with other, uh, with cisgender females. Um, it can improve actually lipid profiles uh, to more feminine profile. Um, it uh, can um, uh, cause breast development and in that way, increase prolactin in a few individuals. So we screen for that. Softens their skin, it changes the way their body mass and body weight gain to more hip and, and chest uh, rather than uh, belly weight gain. It may affect their sexual health and their sexual interest and activities. So you may wanna address that. that there are changes that can be made in their, their affirming healthcare that can improve that. Um, it does decrease sperm count. So I talk with all of my, my kiddos about preserving sperm ahead of time. They can come off gender affirming hormones later, but it takes three months off uh, at least before they produce um, healthy sperm again. And so a lot of folks don't ever wanna go off of their gender affirming hormones, especially not for that long a period of time. So you may wanna be proactive. Um, it can um, change their uh, 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 muscle mass as well as the shifts in their body fat that we mentioned. Um, and then we talked about sexual health. Looking at the gender affirming uh, masculine hormones, um, all the same sort of improvements in their uh, dysphoria and their mental health. Um, it increases facial hair, body hair, body odor, um, on oiliness of the skin and acne. It decreases the pitch of their voice, uh, improves their muscle mass and their ability to build muscle mass. I always tell them it's not like Popeye spinach and they don't get the reference because I'm old. Um, it's not magic. You have to work those muscles to build them still. Um, and then um, it may soften their breasts, but it doesn't necessarily uh, make them smaller. Uh, sometimes it increases their blood pressure and their 
their profile of lipids um, shifts to a more masculine profile. I'm not seeing in my in my space, and nor are there reports of uh, elevated cholesterol panels unless there's a family history that makes them prone to it. And uh, but I am seeing that, and I'm able to intervene um, early for those patients, which um, is something they. Were, would unlikely have been able to have identified and treated, uh, in my personal opinion, at an early stage if they weren't receiving gender affirming care and monitoring. Um, reproductive, uh, of course, it um, uh, stops their period for most patients. Um, sometimes in your clinic, you may just want to use a progestin only or a continuous OCP in your primary care practice to help block their periods, and that can often be just enough to. Uh, help them um, have time to figure out what they want to do. And, and it also reduces significant dysphoria for some folks, anxiety, depression. So that's something you can do in your practice um, uh, before they even come to see us, um, especially in those patients whose parents might not be so open um, to, to coming to a practice like mine. Um, it, uh, during the time they're on testosterone, uh, they do sometimes still ovulate. They can get pregnant, so they need to be on another form of birth control. Um, uh, and uh, of course, long-term, we're seeing the similar reproductive rates in trans men who go off testosterone to purposefully get pregnant as uh, cisgender folks who have never been on gender-affirming hormones. So, um, and it may increase their interest in sex and their libido. And so, keeping an eye on that as well, because sometimes it can be even too much um, and uh, being uh, having an open conversation with them about that um, is important. Um, to talk a little bit about puberty blockers, that's something that's generally only done in endocrinology practices. Um, some folks in primary care who have expertise and training in this area are uh, doing this work. Um, it does take training and, and kind of further understanding of, uh, of puberty suppression. When I say puberty suppression, um, I mean using um, a GNRH medication to pause LH and FSH secretion and pause development of the gonad further from the point at which it is at the time you start medication. Some adolescents may come in and say they want puberty blockers who are already menstruating, for example, and, and really what they want is period blockers. Um, um, but sometimes it gets conflicted and misunderstood in the in the population. So make sure that you kind of parse that out when you're talking with folks. True puberty blockers are uh, GnRH agonist antagonists. They kind of bind to the receptors um, GnRH and block the endogenous GnRH from uh, uh, causing LH and FSH secretion, and thus um, the gonads from making their hormones. Um, and those are um, very rarely used. Uh, um, most people um, uh, who get kind of flustered about this work um, think that every kid who comes into one of our offices is getting this particular treatment. That is not at all. Um, the broad majority of patients come to us post-pubertally and are not getting this treatment, but the ones who need it are significantly dysphoric, uh, have known for a long time that, uh, what their gender identity is and have uh, identified and have been persistent and insistent over time. Uh, they've had a multidisciplinary assessment um, and multiple individuals have uh, confirmed that the patients have this gender dysphoria and um, 
agree that a pause in puberty would give them time to really understand their, continue to understand their gender identity to develop over time and figure out what route they want to go. Do they want to come off and, and, and go through their own puberty? Some of my patients do that. Um, do they want to continue and um, add gender-affirming hormone therapy? At that particular time, should they choose that route? Um, it is, uh, a, if they have not gone through enough puberty for their ovaries or testicles to develop to the point where they're making um, uh, eggs or sperm, then they may be permanently infertile. So it's a very big discussion uh, to have with the patient and their parents. Um, parents uh, and patients must consent and assent to the process and, and really work hard to make sure they understand what that means. It's a very small minority of patients who end up with this particular care, um, but they are the ones who, who truly need it. Um, if you look at research, um, talking to adult transgender individuals, if they'd had this option available, the majority of them would have chosen this option. Um, so it, it's something to really consider um, in particular individuals who are younger. Um, I will say we, we do talk through the process that allowing one to go through at least part of puberty, if the patient can tolerate that, will allow them potential fertility um, and it may offer them more options if they choose to have a surgical intervention down the road, particularly in trans women. They may have more tissue available for vaginoplasty. And so sometimes just waiting a little bit um, if they can and be safe and healthy um, is, is, is a trade-off that is chosen. Um, those medications uh, can't be started until puberty is started and really isn't recommended until puberty is started because um, that's really sort of one of the, the big developmental stages for understanding your gender identity and, and having some of that pubertal experience is important uh, uh, for them to really understand that development. Um, also, uh, the broad range of puberty uh, entry uh, for those assigned male at birth can be anywhere from nine to 14, and you don't want to use a medication for five years that isn't necessary because the kiddo, you started it at nine and they didn't go into puberty until they were, you know, 14 or 13. Um, so, uh, um, it's very expensive medication. Um, and so there, um, difference, you know, it's just not something you want to use until you need to use it. Um, it can be temporary and, and many times is temporary, um, can be used until a patient is old enough to choose to have a gonadectomy. Um, um, it can be used until a patient decides to transition to, um, uh, something like spironolactone for trans women, or at a point which the testosterone is suppressing their own in, endogenous hormones as well and can be stopped at that time. Their injections or implants, and they, they can be tough to get covered, uh, even for kids who are using the medications for early puberty because of their expense. So lots of, of barriers there. Um, and looking at what might be a problem in using these, these medications, um, we've been looking at bone density. Long-term trans women have uh, lower bone density, um, especially those who go on and off therapy over time. Um, and so we want to make sure we optimize bone density in, during adolescence when you're gaining that. And so uh, making sure you're screening uh, for 
kids who are on these medications, uh, particularly the puberty blockers for osteoporosis and other risk factors, family history, for example, uh, low BMI. Um, in general, I've only encountered it in folks who have low BMI. Um, and so I would suggest certainly screening those more closely, um, making sure they're on treatment, um, uh, vitamin D, um, calcium uh, and um, movement, you know, uh, moving those muscles and increases their bone density in their bones. And so encouraging activity and starting gender affirming hormones when you can, so that they do restart development of that bone accrual and aren't on uh, puberty blockers for long periods of time without a gender affirming hormone. Um, in studies looking at whether or not they affect um, uh, brain development, there's no evidence that intelligence in, is slowed or that executive function is slowed, which makes sense because our kids who are late bloomers um, are still going to school and they're still making A's or whatever they were making before um, during that time. And um, there are naturally some executive function that does improve when you start puberty but we're not seeing any delays in that in patients who are on um, these particular treatments. So good news. We talk about fertility. Um, there are lots of fertility options. We talk about it uh, up front, um, if possible, um, uh, storing um, gametes. Um, if it's not possible, both either from, a, from just a patient's ability to even um, do this because of their gender dysphoria around their genitals, um, it may be something that they um, choose to um, uh, get gametes um, and or uh, use a partner's gametes, um, which are options as well as, um, you know, uh, adoption, which can be a struggle too. So we, we really talk a lot um, in these kids that, you know, there are options there's going to be, it might be tough, but um, planning ahead is best. Um, who who are, uh, are, meet the criteria from our World Professional Association for Transgender Health and kids and adults, persistent well documentation of gender dysphoria, capacity to make well-informed decisions and consent for treatment, age of majority in their given country, uh, particularly for surgical interventions. Um, uh, there are, um, they, these hormones uh, treatments are available for kids who are younger. 16 and up is well studied. 14 to 16 has good documentation in our medical literature for treatment and under 14 um, has been shown to help some patients is still under investigation. So, um, that's sort of the, my practice and how I counsel patients. Um, and then they um, having significant distress from this. Um, we already kind of went through this, so I'm, oops, uh, no, I didn't, never mind, I lied. These are the types of treatment that are available. When we look at masculinizing treatments, um, we can use subcutaneous injections, in, intramuscular gels, um, patches, um, implanted pe pellets that are um, approved uh, for trans women. Um, for estrogen in particular, we can use injectable patches oral for anti-androgens, um, which uh, still need to be used because estrogen isn't quite strong enough, unlike testosterone, to, su 
suppress endogenous hormones, um, spironolactone, the GnRH, um, finasteride, um, also bicalutamide, which is another similar to spironolactone androgen blocker. We can, um, what do we worry about? What do we think about for testosterone? We think about most commonly increased hematocrit. I'm not typically seeing it outside of the meal range, but I watch for it. Decreasing their testosterone and increasing their hydration is most uh, uh, effective in my uh, practice and in, um, in our studies. Uh, occasionally liver dysfunction, um, uh, coronary artery disease, but generally only in those who are at higher risk. Um, hypertension is similarly what we're seeing. Breast and uterine cancer aren't really reported as much uh, as an increased prevalence as much as um, making sure that you're um, continuing to do screening for people who are on testosterone who still have breasts and uteruses. Um, uh, so that's really where that guideline falls from. And when we're thinking of estrogen use, um, really uh, low bone density, as I mentioned before, and then uh, thrombo, uh, venous thromboembolic disease, uh, typically seen in folks who are older, um, old, older, on older forms of estrogen and on to higher doses of estrogen. And of course, I scream for prolactin issues, but that's really rare, typically seen in high doses. Um, and once you have breast tissue, you have an increased risk for breast cancer. So making sure your trans feminine patients are being screened. They actually have an improved uh, coronary artery disease profile, occasionally worsening um, likelihood of gallbladder disease, which is common, more common in women anyway. And then uh, sometimes hypertriglyceridemia. Relative contraindications uh, to these hormones um, are clotting disorders, uh, including sickle cell disease, um, his personal history of clotting disturbance, or hormone-sensitive cancers. But there are ways to work through some of these things and other things that can be done for patients that are not hormones. Um, and certainly, we talk with patients about smoking, which is really a, a no-no general but in, in people who are on hormones, uh, particularly. We talked a little bit about screening um, and making sure people are getting their prostate screening, their mammograms, their um, pap smears, um, their um, uh, other breast screening, uh, bone mineral density for trans women as well, and even for some trans men. And of course, uh, for those at high risks with high risk sexual behavior, STI screening. Um, we went through this, but other things that you can use that are alternatives that some people use for transmasculine folks, uh, vaginal atrophy can be a, a pretty significant issue. If you see people who are on gender affirming therapy are presenting with dysuria or pelvic cramping, um, they may need some vaginal, um, estrogen and it often is really helpful. You can use it intermittently, um, and it doesn't get as much systemic, uh, absorption, Progesterone to improve um, intermittent bleeding that might occur. Um, they may uh, also use finasteride if they start developing male pattern baldness um, or minoxidil. Um, I send a lot of my kids to dermatology for significant chest and back acne um, binding. Um, and there are safe ways to do that. And you can assist with legal name change and document changes. Reach out if you have questions about that. I, um, it, it varies by state what your birth certificate can be done, but you can do passport and, and other national changes um, fairly easily.
For feminizing patients, sometimes laser hair removal, uh, electrolysis um, can be used for scalp hair regrowth. If they've already had significant issues, you can um, use to, uh, more therapies there. Uh, voice therapy for training for folks who've already had a voice change and again, legal documents. Those are some of the things we kind of work on. And then finally, if you're having parents in your clinic who are really struggling, know that they may, uh, that, that you need to validate their concerns, um, that they are concerns. I, I typically separate parents from the kids pretty quickly if I'm seeing this kind of behavior and um, have private discussion with them to, so that I know where they're coming from and what their concerns are and how I can address them with regard to safety uh, of the medications and the treatments and, the, and, and, and whatever's going on that has their um, concerns raised and, and know that they can come to you to talk about these things and, and that it's, it should be a private discussion so that their kiddos don't feel um, othered or feel like they're being um, not validated by their parents' questions um, because that that is a, a, a danger. Um, uh, understand that 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 if they're not supporting their kids, it's probably because they're afraid and you can address those fears. Um, and they're often behind. The kids have been thinking about it for a long time and and education is the way to help them catch up um, and really start to feel more comfortable in this space. Um, and then consider uh, giving the parent private space and another time even. Um, and this is sort of the group of folks that we use in, if you're using a multidisciplinary approach. I've mentioned many of these folks already. Um, some people that I haven't mentioned already are physical therapy. They can help kiddos sort of masculinize or feminize ahead of time. They can help them get ready for chest surgery by improving pectoral strength and um, thus contour after uh, surgery. Uh, pelvic health, of course, uh, if they are going in for hysterectomy or vaginoplasty is really important. Um, Pharmacy is key for some of these medications, especially injectables um, with education and monitoring, and then uh, nutrition, given the eating disturbance uh, as an increased prevalence. Uh, smoking cessation, I hadn't mentioned, but um, a lot of these other folks I have. So I think that's about all I've got. I do have some information on surgical transitions, but I did just so if you want to reach out, you're welcome to. Um, but I think I'm ready for questions. Um, oh, one last thing. These are some really good books and really good places to get uh, parent support. Trevor Project, many of you know, are, um, uh, they have a, basically a lifeline uh, for kids who are LGBTQ. PFLAG is a parent group, so is Transforming Families. Your LGBT centers are often good resources in your communities. And these are several great books that often help parents get to where they can understand things. Um, I highly recommend uh, Found in Transition. It's written by a pediatrician. Um, and um, anyway, one of my faves. All right. Dr. Atkins, uh, thank you very much. That was a truly comprehensive review and, and uh, just show highlights your, your expert care in your program and so important for our pediatricians. Uh, before, uh, there are a couple of questions, but I wanted Dr. Melissa Santos uh, who's the head of our division of uh, 
child psychology, but also uh, the associate chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Department of Pediatrics, to give us just two, you know, a couple of things on on our own program here, so that people are aware, who, you know, who who can they reach and what can we do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Atkins, for such an amazing presentation. And yes, just to give you a quick update of some of the activities that we have ongoing here at Connecticut Children's. It's led by our wonderful gender clinic that Dr. Priya Fuwani has done an amazing job assembling a multidisciplinary team to really provide kids whole child health. Um, also along those lines, Dr. Atkins um, showed you some of those screenshots of the things that are available in Epic. We do have those available as well on our link page, and I think perhaps they will show up in the chat momentarily so that you can access those as well. We have some other things that happening here at the hospital as well. We have some great research initiatives to make sure that we're providing the best care, both in terms of medical and mental health services. And you can also find on our DEI page uh, information about how you can be more um, welcoming for our kids, including how to use pronouns in your clinical practice and adding them to your email signatures as well. We also know that as we continue to see more of our transgender youth coming through all of our clinics, it's not just in endocrinology or just in our gender clinics, we wanna make sure that we're working with those kids to really make sure that we're providing the best care. So you'll be hearing more about our transgender youth advisory council that we'll be starting. And if at any time, Dr. Atkins has provided us great information today, but we have to keep the conversation because the information does change. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Dr. Fawani or myself. We're happy to come to your divisions and do talks or lunch and learns. I think the one thing that we know is that our kids have really been impacted over the past uh, several years of the pandemic, but we know our transgender youth have been most impacted and we can do a lot to make them feel hopeful um, by providing uh, equitable care for them. Thank you, Melissa. Um, Dr. Atkins, if you can hear me, the question from Dr. Ken Spiegelman. A recent New York Times article highlighted major issues arising around the country when gender nonconforming children and adolescents are identified and supported by school personnel but not communicated to the parents at the request of the child. Can you comment on that? Um, yes, actually, uh, this has come up yesterday in our, uh, our Senate, actually, uh, here in North Carolina. Um, um, it's really important for kids, as you, as you saw in my presentation, to have their um, name and, and pronouns affirmed uh, by uh, their, um, you know, schools and their and their families. And so if they have a fear that their family, they may be in danger if their family um, knows this information, we're causing harm right there. Um, and we know we're causing harm. And so um, I think it's really important that those kids are allowed that privacy um, with the school systems um, because doing it's doing good to allow them to do it and it's harming them if, if, if they are sharing that with parents who aren't affirming. It's nine o'clock, so uh, there are a couple more questions, but I'm going to I'm going to send them to you directly, so you can perhaps answer them that way. I want to thank you uh, for the work that you do, and Dr. Santos for the work that you do here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, just a, a reminder that on Tuesday, February seventh at eight a.m. Uh, for our patient advocacy grand rounds lecture, we'll have Admiral Rachel Levine. Uh, who is the Assistant Health Secretary uh, for the United States. Uh, she will be giving a talk on social roles in medicine, improving public health through engagement beyond the clinical setting. And, and Dr. Le Levine is uh, the highest ranking transgender 
uh, female in the U.S. government right now, and we'll really honor that she's going to be here in person. So please join us for Grand Rounds, and then we're going to have a, a roundtable right after that. So again, uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. Enjoy your weekend. Stay warm. Be well. Bye-bye.